Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com. This is a podcast Q&A with Kelly McGillis, who was in Witness and Top Gun, that was recorded during Philadelphia's Queer Fest film festival as Miss McGillis was being given the Artistic Achievement Award. Normally, this isn't the sort of Q&A I'd upload, but the whole thing was so strange I figured I should share. To give some context, Miss McGillis was considered a get for the festival, though why she was being given the award is unclear because she hasn't really made a relevant film in about 25 years, except for the fact that she came out of the closet last year, she was available, and she lived nearby. That may sound cynical, but the festival was severely underattended, and the phoning by the small crowd in the theater that holds 500 people, made up of about, I don't know, 40 bush lesbians, which is a fair assessment, because that's actually reinforced specifically later by one of the uh, attendees in a question. Ten or so people from Miss McGillis's current home in uh, Collingswood, New Jersey, and myself and another film critic, all of which seemed to surprise Miss McGillis, just all the fawning was strange. Uh, she was being uh, interviewed by Philadelphia Inquirer critic Carrie Rickey, who would interview her for an article that ran a few days before the festival began. That would suggest an established rapport, but Miss Rickey asked many of the same questions that had appeared in the article, which I'm linking to on the website to the point where Miss McGillis says at one point, do you want me to answer the same way I did before? In fact, it happens twice, but only one of them is audible. Despite the familiarity with the questions, Miss Ricky stumbled quite a bit throughout the hour-long interview, but I've cleaned it up to make her sound a lot smoother. Miss McGillis does do pretty well throughout the interview. She runs the gamut from talking humorously about her Juilliard application and why she was fired from bachelor party to seriously discussing her rape and tearfully describing how she blamed her lover at the time for the incident, to a bit of each talking about her dreadful experience on the set of Abel Ferrara's mangled adaptation of Elmore Leonard's novel, Cat Chaser. From that point on, though, the interview skims over seemingly important details as if it were as controlled and cleaned up as an episode of Inside the Actor's Studio, like when they would do Harrison Ford and, you know, he didn't want to talk about Blade Runner, so they didn't talk about Blade Runner, and then they skipped everything to... Indiana Jones' Last Crusades, if the seven years in between didn't count. Anyway, during this interview, she mentions that her kids were taken away because she was a drunk, and then there's a brief story about rehab, but nothing really. I mean, it's it's totally skimmed over, and we never find out what she did after 1989, apart from a few episodes of The L Word. There's no other work really mentioned except a TV movie that's referred to by one of the audience members in the questions asked after the interview was over. But after the sort of professional portion of the interview is over, the audience questions came in, and that's really where it becomes quite strange, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to upload it, because the questions go from idiotic, can you tell us what an ensemble is, to fawning, you are pretty and sexy, to, well, I don't really know what this is, if you could kiss anyone in Hollywood, you'll hear me at one point whisper to the critic next to me, did that really just happen? If anything, it helped me decide that it was inappropriate to ask the question that was originally the only reason I came to the interview at all. I would have gotten booed out of the theater. I did try to ask it one-on-one, but was shooed away by a PR flack, even though Miss McGillis did try to answer it. My question was based on the article I'm linking to on the site uh, in the film section of uh, The Onion's AV Club. It was uh, character actor uh, Bronson Pinchot, who everyone knows who he is, Balky. He was asked about his experiences working at Risky Business, and he went into this story describing the way that Tom Cruise was acting in a completely bizarre and unmotivated homophobic way throughout the shoot. This is a quote. 
He was tense and made constant, constant unrelated homophobic comments like, you want some ice cream in case there are no gay people there? I mean, his lingo was larded with the most, there was no basis for it. It was like, it's a nice day. I'm glad there are no gay people standing here. Very, very strange. So I wanted to know if Miss McGillis experienced something similar on the set of Top Gun, or was the Macho Simpson Bruckheimer tone of the film so overwhelming as to put a kibosh on it? It's a strange situation because here's this closet woman trying to make a short, quote-unquote, sexually confused male star look masculine on the set of a movie that is one of the most notoriously homoerotic films of all time. Anyway, Ms. McGillis said there was none of the anticipatory homophobia from Tom Cruise when she made Top Gun, although she admits during the interview that everyone was hungover on set when they'd show up to work, so who knows how aware she might have been. As a whole, though, I'm not sure whether this podcast is an overall commentary on how and why film festivals are going away, hence the low turnout, and how the audience tries really hard to, quote, overlove the guest as a way to hold on to the experience, or just a celebratory experience for everyone in the room except for myself and the other critic, as we constantly try to reassure ourselves that we are not, in fact, dreaming. Enjoy. Time starts now. Time starts now. Please put your hands together and welcome the inspirational lesbian, as well as wonderful actress, Kelly McGillis. Justice and the Accused, and uh, today, apart from acting, she, from sharing her acting gifts with the world, she uh, shares her wisdom by helping others uh, work through their addiction issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Kelly McGillis, because we can't have First off, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Family is kind of just, I don't know, 
typical middle-class family. Um, we sailed every weekend. My father was an avid sailor and kind of a kook, and I adored him. He passed away in 2000. Yeah, and so I was incredibly rebellious, and eventually uh, my parents asked me to leave home at 17 and not come back ever. <laughs> and I haven't, so... <laughs> How and when did the urge to act hit you? I was in high school, and uh, I didn't really have anything to do, and I needed some extra credits. So I thought, oh, I'll take an acting class. And um, I was in this class for about a week, and the teacher said, you know what, I think you need to go to the advanced class. And I said, oh, okay, good. <laughs> and um, I went to this class, advanced class, and they were doing a play. And um, it was called The Serpent by Jean-Claude Van Itali, and it's an ensemble piece. And uh, I was one of the four women narrating it, and we, you know, did it like in high school. You take those plays uh, on uh, those circuits where you uh, win prizes for them. And when we did it at Cal State Long Beach, I won an award for best supporting actress. So I thought, oh, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I could do something like this. And I had an amazing teacher who was really an inspiration. His name is Tom Braddock. Um, I still have kept in touch with him. You know, he's somebody who inspired me to let me know that I could that I could do acting for a living and that it was a legitimate, legitimate job um, and that I could inspire people. And what I really loved and adored about Tom was the fact that he taught us all from the get-go that it was a communitive art form. It wasn't about being a star. It wasn't about being behind the scenes, that it was really a sense of community. And most of the theater, you know, because he was a big product of the 60s theater scene in New York and Los Angeles, he was really big on doing ensemble plays, so we did a lot of those in high school. Before you went to Juilliard, uh, you studied acting, and can you talk about how you did your first, like, college acting? Yeah, well, I, oh God, this is an embarrassing story. Um, my parents threw me out of the house, and I was working at a deli uh, slicing meat. And um, I, I thought, oh my God, I can't possibly do this for the rest of my life. What should I do? <laughs> and uh, I had heard about this school called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts in Santa Maria, California, at a school called Allen Hancock Junior College. And uh, so I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go there. So I loaded up my little Ford Beater station wagon with all my crap and uh, showed up there the first day of school. And they said, well, we're so glad you're here, Cal, but you have to audition to get into this program. And I went, oh, really? Well, where do I do that? So uh, they, I booked a time. I had to go back down to uh, Costa Mesa, California, where I was living at the time. I auditioned, and they did accept me, and I got to go back, which was very fortunate for me. <laughs> Okay, to get to your uh, post-California stage, uh, you went to Juilliard, and why Juilliard, and um, who was in your class there? Um, well, I wanted to go to New York because I wanted to just not show up in um, New York and say, hey, I'm here, I want to act like a billion other people. And so I auditioned for two schools, and I auditioned for NYU, and my audition was not very good because I didn't get accepted. And actually, my audition for the Juilliard School sucked because um, oh, they asked me to play in the, um, what was it? Oh, they said play in the mud. 
it as an improvisation. And I was like, oh my God, I'm from Newport Beach. We do not play in mud. <laughs> oh, oh, God. So I was sitting there playing in mud. It was a theater kind of like this, and they're sitting a little far back. And I thought, well, the most, best thing I could do is pretend I'm in snow. So I'm going to play in playing around. And they're talking away while I'm doing my work. And I said, excuse me, is there something you'd like to say to me? And they said, no. And I said, well, then you need to stop talking. And they said to me, something inside of you made you stop. And I said, yeah, you're talking. <laughs> they said, that's it. That'll be enough. Thank you very much. And I walked out in the huff. And, um, and then they accepted me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, that was, I don't know, just amazing. But um, yeah, my class at Juilliard is interesting. You know, it's a four-year school. It's very intense. And you're with the same people for four years. Some of the people in my class were Kevin Spacey, Liz McGovern, um, Anthony Peck. I think you have a class. Oh, Ving uh, Rains. Ving Rains. Um, I'm sure there's some other people that I've forgotten to mention. People that work a lot. You know, that's one thing I did. I have noticed that it was a very intense program. I think 24 was my class to start off with, and by the end of the four years, there were only uh, 10 of the original people left. It's a very tough, tough program, and not a lot of people make it. And I was crazy neurotic, so I think they just took pity on me. <laughs> and then. Uh, anything happened to you on the way of becoming a stage actress, you became a movie star. And how did that happen? Sheer accident. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing Don Juan in Hell in, the, in uh, Central Park at the theater there with the public, and I was one of, uh, I don't know, 20 background girls, some, some amount of background girls. We all wore the same costumes, basically, same wigs. And, uh, Somebody had come and seen the play who had, it was a cousin of somebody that I'd worked in, in, with in California at DCBA. And um, his name was Philip Epstein, and he asked me if Among other I things, would, Philip Epstein did was write Casablanca. No, this is, that's his father. Oh, sorry. No, no, this is his the son. son. Um, his father wrote Casablanca. And his son was working with his father on this little project called Ruben Ruben. And he asked me if I would come in and um, audition for it. And I thought, sure, that would be really great. So I went. And um, they offered me the movie. And I said, oh, no, I can't possibly do it because I'm at school. And I really want to go uh, finish uh, because I didn't graduate from high school. It was super important for me to complete something because I was just feeling like a big loser because I hadn't graduated from high school. And um, that was tough because Juilliard had a policy that they do not allow actors out to work. They asked Liz McGovern after the first year at Juilliard to leave school because uh, she was working. And I understand it. You know, it's hard to work on yourself and your craft if you're constantly going away from the pack, so to speak. And it, it, it was torturous because I, I really spent mo a month tormenting myself thinking this is what I've gone to school for to get a job. It actually pays some money, more than $50 a week. Oh my gosh, what do I do? And I was really fortunate because they allowed me out for my Thanksgiving break, my Christmas break, and I think I missed two weeks of school. Um, and that was it. Uh, so I was really, really, really lucky. The first time I saw you in... Ruben Ruben, and I, I, I met you then, but you didn't remember. 
Uh, she, was she was incredibly shy and letting Tom Conti, who's her, the star, do all the talking. But uh, I was told that she was Juilliard trained and she was the next big deal. But I was really surprised when I saw her on screen because so often stage trained actors have a little bit, don't, don't let the camera come to them. They kind of surge to the camera and they're like too big for the camera uh, because they're projecting to the last row. But you, you didn't. And I was really surprised when I saw the movie. You didn't have that kind of uh, stage actressy quality that um, a lot of Juilliard students had in their first movies. And was it instinctive to, to scale your performance to the camera, or was it luck? Or mm, I think a little bit of both. And I think that I got a lot of coaching from Tom. Um, and uh, everybody on the film was very, very helpful. Because, you know, they said stuff to me like, OK, you shoot something, I go, oh, phew, that's done. <laughs> and they go, oh, you have to match that. And I'd be like, OK, sure. And I, I wouldn't have any idea what they were talking about. <laughs> so um, so you have to match the, the level and the intensity. And yeah, the, you have to do the same thing over and over and over again while they switch the camera around in different angles or whatever. And so in that process, uh, I think some people took a lot of pity on me and gave me some acting tips, which I was really thankful for. Then as uh, your career began to click, you were raped by two intruders to your apartment. How did you get from that very dark place back into the light? <laughs> I drank a lot. <laughs> I drank a lot and did a lot of drugs. That's what I did, honestly. Um, you know, that was a long, long process um, because I wasn't willing or able to deal with it at the time for a long, long time. And I think it wasn't really until I was in my 40s that I was willing to really look um, at that assault and really deal with it. I did my best to pretend it never happened. And uh, did, you, did you seek treatment or uh, psychological treatment? afterwards or I tried I couldn't afford it um, I was on Thorazine instead which I thought sounded like a great solution and um, uh, you know the longer you know I have a great ability it's um, not incredibly healthy uh, but one of my great things that I like to do is pretend things didn't happen and that was my survival instinct at the time because I just couldn't cope with what that meant. You know, I had never, I don't know, when that happened, my, I grew up in a family that didn't talk about sex at all. And um, they didn't talk about anything like that. And Because there was no sex in the Well, I don't know. <laughs> certainly not my family. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's funny that, because I, um, I never knew that somebody would want to do that to somebody. It just, I never heard that. It never occurred to me. I think I was incredibly naive. I just never knew that a person would want to do something like that to somebody else. Um, and I think that that was really the hardest thing for me to cope with in, in coming to terms with it. While we're on the, a bad patch in your life, uh, is it true that you're booted from the Tom Hanks comedy bachelor party? And, yes, and was. why? <laughs> why? Why? Because I wasn't sexy or pretty. That's what they told me. And boy, was I devastated. I was suicidal. Oh gosh, 
Um, yeah, they told me I wasn't sexy, I wasn't pretty. But it, you know, in the long run, I wish I had picked up a napkin just to, to get rid of my feelings about that. <laughs> I need to go back in therapy. <laughs> Obviously, I have some unresolved issues about that. Um, yeah, but when I look back now, you know, I think, really, I'm so grateful that that happened, even though it was devastating at the time, because I had never been tired from any job, anything, what, no matter what crappy waiting tables job I had, or factory job I had, or whatever job it was, I had never been fired. That was the worst thing. Um, and then to top it off and hear somebody say, well, the reason we're fighting you is because you're not pretty and you're not sexy. I mean, it was like, oh my God, let me just go buy a gun now, thank you very much. But it turned out well for me because had I done the movie, I wouldn't have been available for Peter to see me for witness. So it worked out really, really well in the long run. And also, fortunately, uh, <laughs> Peter Weir was uh, drawn to your earthy sex appeal. He thought you were sexy and so did the rest of the world. So uh, tell us how you prepared for the role of Rachel, the Amish widow, in Witness. Well, what I first off, I have to admit that I lied. Uh, on my audition, because Peter said, oh, do you know about the Amish? Said, oh, yeah, sure, I know everything about them. I didn't know anything about them. I thought that they were Quakers. <laughs> and I just thought that they were people that ran around in funny costumes. I had no idea anything about them. So he said, oh, I'm so glad you know about them, because we're going to put you on tape on Monday, and this was a Friday. And I went to the library in New York, and I did as much research as I humanly possibly could in 48 hours. And you know, there wasn't a whole lot available on them, and uh, I talked to one of my speech teachers at Juilliard, asked him about the dialect thing, because well, nobody has an Amish dialect anywhere, good luck with that one. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> what I did was, I went down a month early, I lived with an Amish widow and her uh, seven kids, or eight kids, that's a lot of kids, I can't remember. Um, and. I would go to the marketplace, and you know, at that time you had those uh, those uh, tape players that you could record with too. And I would put headsets on as if I was listening to music. And I would go to the farmers market in uh, Lancaster, and I would record people. I would, you know, try to get them in conversation. And so that's how I learned the dialect. And then I lived with Mary Stoltzfus and her kids, and planted potatoes and milked cows and ate a lot of potato chips. <laughs> Amish potato chips are fried and lard. They're very, very good. They're very, very bad for me. Um, so uh, just uh, for a little break, let's do a little lightning round. I want, I'm going to say a word or a name. I want your top of head response. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Oh, now you did this to me the other day. Do I have to say exactly no, what I said the other it's, day? It's, it's, no, it's a different because my mood is different today. <laughs> okay. Talk about response. Um, for, In the moment. Okay, say the name again. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Yeah, a little star here. Import, no, yeah, it's here. Oh, yeah. It's here. Um, important, aloof, quiet. Okay. Peter Weir. Intelligent, intuitive, insightful. Build street station. Beautiful, loud, smelly. <laughs> but not dangerous. No, I do not love it. Only in the movie it's dangerous. Uh, Vigo Mortensen. Uh, sweet, sensitive, poetic. He is a poet, is he not? Yes, he is. Yeah. 
but he is a poetic person. I don't know how to describe that, but every how he perceives the world is poetic. And that, and that was his first movie, I think. Yes, it was. Next came um, when I when I think about going from the slow buggy rides of uh, Witness to the supersonic planes of Top Gun, I always laugh and think he must have gotten bands or something to go from such a slow pace to such a fast pace. But uh, how did the Top Gun script find you? And what, what did you think of uh, the experience? Well, the Top Gun script, I was doing a play actually called Peccadillo um, on a pre-Broadway tryout with Linus Jones, Chris Plummer, and myself, and another guy, Todd something, uh, forgive me, I forgot his last name, and it was a mess. Oh my God, it was a terrible, terrible mess because Garson had had a stroke. Garson Kanan. Garson Kanan had had a stroke, thank you. And um, he wasn't capable of finishing the play. And one of the reasons why we all agreed to do it was that he would be rewriting while we were on the road. And then Michael Langham, who was the head of Juilliard, who was a good friend of Chris's, and I know Michael very well, he was uh, the head of the drama department while I was there, came in to take over, and it was just a struggle. And I kept on calling my agent, you have to get me out of this, you have to get me out of this. And um, I can't open in New York for this, I just can't, it's a mess. And so I was offered two Jakes, and I went away, I got out of the play, I went and worked on two Jakes, uh, did a lot of pre-production for that, um, then I went to Cannes, and when I was at Cannes for Witness, they called and said, two Jakes has been canceled, and that was a great deal for me, because I got paid and I didn't have to work, but, um, and so I thought I'd go on vacation, but no, um, because when I did Witness, they made me sign a two-picture deal, and, uh, and so what they needed to do really quickly was find a project for me, so I don't know. Honestly, if I was probably the best choice for Top Gun, but that's how it worked out. And so they gave, they sent that script to me, and I read it, and I thought, oh, that's okay. It's um, you know, it's like a big western in the sky with airplanes. <laughs> It'll be really popular. And uh, okay, I'll do. And I didn't want to do it actually. First, I told my agent it was of shit. But, um, but he said, no, 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 Kelly, it'll be really big, and it'll do wonders for your career, and then you can go off and do all the friggin' art you want to. Um, and I was, you know, I was so arrogant when I was young. I said, okay, I didn't go to Juilliard to do this kind of movie. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, no, please, just do it and shut up. So I did it. And it was really, I had so much fun. And actually, I'm going to say something to you that, you know, the pace on Witness was much quicker. Really? Yes, than on Top Gun, because I think everybody was so friggin' hungover. We never got a shot done before noon. Everybody would come to work at 10, and we'd all sleep in the hair and makeup room, getting our faces done and our hair done. And then, well, the boys didn't have much hair to do, but, um, and then, I don't know what Tony and those guys were doing, but then we'd all all of a sudden break for lunch. I mean, it was like the slowest movie. It took a long time to work, shoot, too. I think we shot, I, I don't know, an extraordinarily long time. Well, the pace of Witness, except for the last, the first and the last scenes, is very... Of the film that you yes. see. Yes. So but not the film that you work on, because exactly. that was a much quicker paced film in terms of, you know, product. So um, you were doing these little short cuts for a Top Gun, and so it wasn't accelerated like our experience at all. And mm, you, you, know. you, you just 
described um, what you described being on this being with the cast and crew is a little bit like uh, summer camp, right? Oh, it was summer camp because we all played sports together and we hung out together and you know, it was just crazy. Those boys were crazy. I never heard it from Rick Rothbard, Rossovich again, but he was nutty as all get out. He drove his car through the restaurant at the hotel we were staying in. They'll never want to see us again, ever, I'm sure. But it was like being at camp. So let's do a little Top Gun lightning round. Okay. Tom Cruise. Kind, generous, compassionate. Meg Ryan. Sweet, funny, endearing. Tony Scott, your director. That's a top of head response. Oh, I don't know. Artistic? Uh, I don't know the word I would look at. Like a bulldog. I don't know the word I would use. Just really. Bulldoggy. I don't know the word. After Top Gun, you worked on uh, one of my favorite movies, maybe a little underknown, called uh, Made in Heaven. Any memories of working with Alan Rudolph? And um, I've seen your co-star in Deborah Winger, Tim Hutton. Uh, Tim Hutton. Uh, any memories of working with him? Well, yes, I do have. I don't know. Can I swear here? <laughs> I think. Okay, I'll tell you what. It's a really good anecdote about that movie. I love Alan Rudolph. By the way, I think he is a great filmmaker. I just really loved him so much, and it was great working with him. Tim had this great thing while the whole time we were shooting, he would talk really quietly like this. And you know I'm like, you but you can barely hear me. So the sound people and Alan would go, can't you get him to talk louder? And I said, I don't know what to do. I, mean, I don't know, I'm talking loud at him. He's not talking loud back. So um, the sound guys got this little clown and they put it on the sound cart. And every time Tim wouldn't talk loud enough, they would say to me, hey, Kelly, what does the sound clown say? And they would say, fuck you, talk loud. It became this ongoing thing throughout the movie. And then we were shooting out at some plantation outside of Atlanta, I don't know where, but the sound clown met his demise on the highway. He blew off the sound cart's antenna. So that was it. <laughs> Your next major movie was The Accused, and uh, did you find the script? Did it find you? And uh, They sent it to me when I was over in Israel working on a little movie, and um, I read it, and I really wanted to do it. And they asked uh, what part I would be interested in, and I think Ka I think Catherine is her name. I'm not sure. I don't remember. The, the lawyer, lawyer part. Yeah. Catherine and, Murphy, I believe. And so uh, that's what I, uh, that's what happened on that one, because I didn't think that doing the other part would be um, really acting, you know, I didn't. And for those who might not have seen the movie, it's uh, based on a famous case in Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, of a woman being uh, gang raped in a bar, and Jodie Foster ended up playing the uh, rape victim, and, uh, and she won an Academy Award, she was very, very good in it. So were you, and you must have... Uh, wasn't both of you were on screen a lot together. So. No, but she was yeah. great in it. I really thought she was really wonderful. Was doing um, that part, did it feel, did it re-stimulate issues around your 
Well, I'm pretty certain it did because I hadn't dealt with any of it. You know, like I said, I was going along my merry way pretending like, oh, that never really happened. Yeah, you know, but I thought it was an important film to do because of my experience. And I know when I was doing the press tour for it, uh, I was accused of using my own experience for publicity for the film. And, you know, I had to say, my response to that was, I could not disassociate my life experience from the reason why I thought that film was an important film to make um, and why I wanted to do it. So there's no way that I could say, oh, I just came across this story and thought it was a nifty story to do. And so, you know, yeah, I think that it did bring up some stuff for me, but not, obviously, I wasn't able to deal with it for a long time. I think right after the accused, or right around that time, uh, you got married. Uh, was your um, sexual orientation a question for you then? Well, <laughs> that's a really complicated question, and there's no easy answer to that, because when I was, um, when I was in New York, when we, I was raised with my girlfriend, and um, I thought it was because I was gay. I was convinced that I was being punished because I was in love with women. And needless to say, that relationship didn't survive that. And I will always feel sad about that um, because it was two guys caught her in the hallway with her keys out and forced her to open the door. And I always blamed her for that. And I feel terrible. That's why I'm crying. Because I feel terrible about that. Because I know today it wasn't her fault. Um, so that, for me, after that happened, I thought, nothing like that will ever happen to me again. I will never put myself in a situation that I will be hurt that way again. And um, honestly, I went on a rampage. I, I just, oh God, I hate to say this, but it's the God's honest truth. I fucked at a lot of men. I was really angry. And um, I did that for a while. And then I met somebody who I thought would protect me, who was strong, who would save me. And I married him because I wanted to have kids. And I loved him, and I do love Fred. I think he's you know, a fantastic man. Um, and it was during that whole point in my life where I was really trying not to be who I am. I was trying so hard not to be a rape victim, not to be gay, because all those things were all tied in together. And, uh, you know, finally, after trying to do that for a long time, there was a certain point where I just said, I can't do this. This is a big lie. And Fred always knew. You know, I never lied to anybody. I never have been dishonest to anybody about who I am. I may not have talked about it publicly, um, because really it's nobody else's business. And uh, it was a big struggle for me, a huge struggle. And I met my current girlfriend in 2000. Um, she worked at my restaurant in Key West. And I was still married at the time, but our marriage was a shambles because I was not being true to who I was. It just couldn't possibly work. You know, I was living a big lie. And um, so that's been a big struggle for me.
after, uh, I guess after the accused, you uh, frequently return to the stage, and you did several speakings of Shakespeare at the Folger in Washington, did you not? Uh-huh. And the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger, but then it also now is at the Landsberg um, and the Harmon Center. And did you, is there a Shakespeare character you really love playing? Well, yeah, I love playing a lot of them. I liked Viola in Twelfth Night. I liked uh, Portia in, uh, what's the name of that play? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Merchant of Venice, thank you. I hate being 53. <laughs> um, uh, I really liked doing Lavinia in Morning Becomes Electra, which uh, I never, when Michael asked me to do it, I thought he was insane to ask me to do that part. Because I thought I'll never be able to do something like this. Um, you, you said last week that it was your, your most challenging role. Like it was by far, I, I'm the most proud of that. But first off, because I was doing As You Like It at the time. So I was doing As You Like It eight shows a week, playing Rosalind, haha, funny, funny. And then I go into this rehearsal and do Electra, basically, killing off my entire family. <laughs> um, and, you know, all of this psychology, dark. O'Neilly crap, and then go, ha, 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 funny, funny, funny. And I thought, and the verbiage in O'Neill is so uh, rhetorical. You know, he says the same thing over and over again about five different ways with one or two word differences. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll never get this memorized. And even on preview night, I said to Michael, I said, can I call for line? I, I, I don't know if I'm sure if I can do it. And he said, sure, you can call for line. I never did, but... Um, so I was really proud of my work in that. There was a movie that you made in, uh, I guess, the late 80s uh, called The Cat Chaser. And you and your director, uh, <laughs> bring up all this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you and your director were at odds. <laughs> you told me it kind of briefly killed your love for acting. Um, I why? hated acting after that job. <laughs> why? Well, first off, it was absolute sexual harassment. Um, I was supposed to do nude scenes. Oh, first off, I just got married to Fred. Welcome to my world, honey. And I go to work one day, and I'm supposed to be doing a nude scene. Our unnamed people had hired a stripper from a club in Miami as my body stand-in. And I walk into the room, and this girl is on all fours with her top down, and every bar male crew member telling her what Kelly would be doing, and they're feeling her breasts, and I mean, it's terrible. And I'm sitting there in the back of the room like this. And I watched it for about four minutes, and I said, you know what, obviously you don't need me to do this scene today, so I'm going to go home. And I called my agent, and I said, I do not know what to do. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do that scene. And he told me that I could exercise my um, my uh, right. You know, in SAG, there's a rule that anytime you have a nude scene in a movie, uh, you always can get out of it at any time you want. You can say, you know what, I've changed my mind. This isn't going the way I want it to. I'm not doing it. And so I did that. Well, that just disintegrated into name-calling, threatening, uh, oh, it was terrible. And I just said, well, you're not going to get me to go back to work by calling me ugly names. And this, I'm just newly married. And Fred goes, does this always happen? <laughs> no, this never happened to me before. I don't know. So 
I ended up finishing the film by doing one final scene, and that was just torturous. I will not even talk about what happened. Um, but afterwards, I had one shot. I said, you have one shot with me. Did the shot. And afterwards, I said, are you all done with me now? And they go, yeah. I said, great. I went into the hair and makeup trailer, and I shaved my head completely. And I said, fuck you. I'm getting on a boat. You won't be able to find me. And I went sailing for six months. And um, I really never wanted to act again after that. I thought, if this is what making movies is like, I don't ever want to do this again. And uh, interesting thing, I don't believe the movie was ever released theatrically, so I, I don't know. I never saw it. <laughs> Fortunately, not very many other people did. So, um, so uh, what brought you from Key West to Moulton, Pennsylvania, in Berks County? Mm, I got sober, and. Uh, when I got sober in Florida, they told me if I went back to Key West, I wouldn't stay sober. So I said, mm, what do I do? And I had no place to go. Um, I had nothing, I don't know, I didn't know what to do first, and my marriage was over. And uh, So they suggested that I go to a halfway house in Moton, Pennsylvania. And so I went there, and I lived there for four months. Maybe, yeah, about four months, I don't know. And I lived there, and then when they said I could go out into the world, go forth and be merry, I said, oh, I don't know how to do that. Um, let me just stay here for a while and figure out how to live life and not drink or drug. So I uh, bought a house there. And um, my kids were had been taken away from me. Um, uh, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just stay in Moton, you know, for a year and learn how to like kind of not drink and live my life and change and stuff and and then I'll go back to either I was thinking about DC or New York and uh, when I was almost a year sober my kids came back into my life and moved in with me and I thought oh I don't want to disrupt them anymore I've already disrupted them far too much and I stayed I stayed in Moton until they left school um. Their courage. 
But it was a struggle. My daughter was a cheerleader, and she would never let us go to the football games. And I mean, it was very awkward. And I can understand that, you know. Um, so I decided, I made a conscious choice not to make my personal life their problem. Um, that I, as a parent, do not have the right to create that kind of suffering in, my, in any child's life. Because of what? In the name of honesty? Well, I don't think it's really lying if I just don't reveal the whole truth all the time. So I waited uh, were until they left. Were there professional... Uh, reasons to, apart from the person? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, early on, yes, there were. Um, uh, there were, uh, I've worked with some people who have been very concerned about that, and I think that that was a concern in the um, 80s and 90s. And look, let's face it, look what happened to Ellen DeGeneres, and when did she come out? What, when, when was that? I don't remember what year. Yeah, okay, and look what happened to her. They dropped her like a hot potato. And, but she has the last laugh. <laughs> yeah, but that took some time. And if you're making your only livelihood off of what, and you're supporting your family, what are you going to do? You know, it's a very tough call. I think that, personally, I think that anyone's coming out is a tremendous act of courage and strength. The fact is, it's a really complicated issue. Because if you're somebody like me who has kids involved, it becomes super duper complicated. Because you're not only talking about your own life, you're talking about a bunch of other people's lives. Well, also, the, the time before that you talked about uh, your rape, you got accused of uh, using your rape as uh, publicity, and you certainly probably were shy about sharing your private life once again. Well, and I think, you know, to the faith, I, I just. I don't know, everybody's got an opinion, and they're not always going to agree with mine, but unfortunately when you're in the public eye, people with some really loud voices can do a lot of damage to people. Without thinking, I don't think that people who wrote some thing about my being gay before I ever came out, and my kids saw it, and all their friends saw it, and uh, all their mommies and daddies saw it at the grocery store, I don't think those people were really thinking about the health and welfare of my kids. I ask one more question before opening up to the audience. You're a very serene person in, in most aspects, but you're very militantly anti-elective surgery. Do you want to share some of the reasons? Yeah, because I did it, and I didn't like it, no. <laughs> um, I did do it. I had a boob job, and I, I you know, I felt it was like a big lie. I, I fell into that big pressure. Um, of not being pretty enough, not looking good enough, not being sexy enough. Oh, there's that little voice from Bachelor Party. Um, <laughs> so what did I do? I got a boob job. Well, you know, when I got into recovery and I started working on a lot of my issues, really it was just a big lie. And I didn't feel comfortable with myself. And the truth is, is that I don't want to lie to people today. I've spent a great deal of my life avoiding things and lying to people. That takes a lot of work, and I don't want to lie. The other part of that is, is you know what, this is my face. This is my life. This is my history, and this is my story. And if I can't cherish that and honor that, oh my God. What have I been doing for the last, how old am I again, 53? <laughs> 53 years, I have a mental block against that. Um, 
You know, I don't want to erase that. I have all, sunspots from all those sailing trips I took with my dad and my kids and my husband at the time. And I have wrinkles from, you know, being out on the beach as a little kid and surfing. And those are all amazing, amazing memories. Why do I want to erase them? Well, it also seems to me that uh, from where I sit, that those actors and actresses, and I have to say the actors are worse, who do get facelifts lose their most beautiful instrument, their facial expressions, and their mobility of, of face, and that's really scary. Well, yeah. do you think it, in, in a job where communication skills are required? Yeah. Let <laughs> 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 me I mean, I just ask you one more question. Uh, where are you happiest? <laughs> I don't know. Wherever I am, usually. Um, I, what do you mean? Like, what do I like to do that mm -hmm. makes me happy? Yes. I like putzing around in the garden. I like putzing at home. Uh, uh, no, home is unequivocally my happiest spot. I am a total homebody. I would love to be a housewife for the rest of my life and do nothing but putter around the garden, do artsy, crafty things, and organize. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love that. Um, yeah. And be of service in my community, you know. Um, but I'm most happy at home. Okay. Um, let's take questions from the audience. And uh, if you could stand up, and I might have to repeat your question so everyone can hear. Uh, no one has questions? Yes, this woman right here. Could you stand up and introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Andy Stabler. And uh, having two daughters of my own, I'm dying to know what your relationship is nowadays with your daughters. Well, it's fantastic. Neither of them live at home. <laughs> Um, yeah, that is very, very good. Uh, my 17-year-old is still a 17-year-old, a little bitchy whenever she's not getting what she wants. Um, but I think all in all, uh, my relationship with my kids is good. My eldest is uh, married and has two kids of her own. She just had twins in February. So, you know, they're on their little life path, and my 17-year-old's living with uh, Fred's sister in California. So, uh, yeah, my relationship today is very, very good. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's ever not been good with them, other than the you know terrible teenage years, which is, I think for any mother and daughter is challenging, at least. Um, my wife, Adriana, and I want to welcome you to Collinsville. We're very happy that you come to Collinsville. I got your note. Thank you. Ensemble piece. 
even though there is one guy who sings a lot, who the story focuses on his little story, it's an ensemble piece because everybody's on stage the whole time. You're welcome. This lady here, please. Hi, my name is Diane. I live in Cherry Hill near Collingswood. Uh, one of my favorite movies of yours is a TV movie called Prey, about the serial killer who sets women victims up to look like dolls. It's very creepy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> forgot about it. <laughs> well, anyways, it's one of my favorite movies that you were in. My question is, when you play a scene which depicts violence against yourself, which there are scenes of that in the movie, when you're done playing the scene, do you have a problem offset, sitting around having coffee, taking a break with the actor? Can you turn it on and off after uh, violence has been portrayed against you? Is my question. Um, no, because it's pretend. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? Acting is a, a playing job. It's pretend. Um, it would be kind of weird to me. Uh, I know that there are some actors who are all about method and all of that stuff. I'm not that way, you know, but um, to me, it's just they're doing their job. You know, and the truth is, is before you do it, you sit around, and you talk, you're shooting shit, you're making jokes. You know, you have to say, oh, you got, I got to hit you here, and I got to look like I'm doing this to you. And, you're, and you have a sound and, clown. Yeah, you have a sound <laughs> clown. And, you know, it's very, very technical. Yeah. Um, and then you do all that stuff, so by the time you get to the emotional stuff, it's just, it's, you've analyzed it to death. There's just, um, and if I did have a problem with it, I would really want to um, question my sense of reality and uh, seek some help. <laughs> yes. My name's Gail. I was wondering what your favorite scene to shoot and witness was. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie since it was made, so I'm really trying to think. I think barn dancing um, was my favorite. It was hotter than hell in there, though, because it was this, it was June in Lancaster, and uh, it was daytime, and we had a blacked-out barn, which meant they had big tarps over that thing, and it was hotter than Hades in there. It was like we'd all open the door and go, oh, oh, oh. But, um, yeah, no, I thought that, that was really a fun scene to do. Hi, my name's Todd Hagerty. Um, my mother promised me that I would ask this question to you. She said, out of all the movies that you've been in, who was the first, uh, favorite person to kiss? <laughs> <laughs> and someone from the National Enquirer is <laughs> Sorry. I have to get back to you on that. I'm going to answer it before we're done. Okay. I have to think of the people that I've kissed first. <laughs> yes, yeah, Hi, I'm Jennifer. It's, it's funny that he asked that question because I, I read that you do not like the question, you know, what's it like to kiss Tom Cruise? I'm not sure how many people here are not interested in that. But, Yes, sir. 
taken some acting or did or were actors at one time um, because they understand it. And so when I teach acting, um, I always get a couple of kids in there who want to direct, and I really encourage them to keep on taking acting classes. Because how can you communicate with people if you don't know what it is that they do? Um, and so I'm glad you asked that. That's a really good question, and I love answering that. Good answer, too. Uh, do we have any more questions? Yes, sir. Um, hi, Carl Stamen, and I'm wondering if there have been any particular roles that you have lobbied for that you wanted to get, that you got, or that you didn't get? but roles that you really wanted and you really wanted to go get them. There was one thing I really, really wanted, and I didn't get it, and I can't remember the name of it now. I'm sorry. I'll have to, I don't know why. Do you know who, who did get it so we could figure it out? <laughs> no, it was in the 80s, though. And it's some kind of futuristic story. Not Blade Runner. No. It's too no, I wasn't even out of school. <laughs> uh, um, no, I can't remember the name of it, but it was something, and I really, really, really wanted it, but it was a big flop, so I was happy. <laughs> it was a flop because you weren't in it. I don't think so. Linda Luker, and um, can you just talk a little bit about your experience with the L word? Did you like that? I mean, we. I loved working with that crew. Um, they were really, really nice. Um, my experience was it was a fun part to do. I went in, was there for, what, three or four weeks or something. Uh, left. I had never seen the hour, really. Um, uh, so it really didn't make any sense to me what all this drama was going on with these other people. And I didn't really care. So I just, uh, I just went in and did my job. Um, but, you know, the, all that other story stuff, I didn't have to pay attention to it, really, because it didn't really concern me. Um, but I, I really adored working with all the women on it, and um, so I had a great time. Um, my name is Rudy Flesher. I'm an actor here in Philly. I guess my question would be, um, in your experience of acting, having to tell other people's truths and experience other characters' emotions, did that help you? Was that therapeutic to you, help you tell your own truth, or was it just separate from Well, obviously it didn't help too much because it took me until I was like 44 years old. Um, but one thing I will say about this is that I do believe, because I had such a hard time, um, I didn't grow up in a family that talked about feelings or emotions, or God forbid somebody cry, everybody short out, they wouldn't know what to do. And for me, I had such big feelings about so much stuff that I just kept on sitting on. You know, like I told you, I like to pretend like nothing's happened, everything's good, no problem here. And what acting did was save my ass because it gave me a way to express feelings. I mean, I think I'm a little different than most people. Not most, but some people, I should say, because I have no problem expressing emotion. I mean, you just saw me cry. I can't stop it. You know, like when I laugh, I really laugh. When I cry, I really cry. I don't have this ability to edit. I feel things big. Um, and I guess that's why I, I act. But um, I think in some ways it really saved me because it gave me a safe outlet to be able to feel 
a lot of feelings, um, which I had no ability to be able to deal with in reality. Um, so it, I hope that answers your question. It, but it took me a long time to like get help with the other stuff. I have a random question. I don't know if it's not, I guess it's more inspirational along those lines. If you had uh, an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody, uh, a conversation like this, dead, live, famous or not, who would you want to sit down and have a conversation with? Do I have to only pick one? You pick two. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus Christ and Buddha. Ah, uh, yes, it's the name. My name is Jackie, and I'm very close neighbor to you. <laughs> <laughs> Acting it? Yes. I don't know if you could pay me enough. My name is Marilyn. You you love actors. Do you want to direct? Um, I have directed. Um, I have directed. I like directing. Is it my calling in life? Um, I don't think I have enough patience for directing. Um, I like it. I, I've directed some stuff in Key West, and um, I really like it. I don't know what I would do in the future. Um, sometimes that big of a responsibility just terrifies me. Because you know who they're going to point the finger at if it sucks? And I don't like that. Um, because if I'm an actor, I go, no, no, it's the director's fault. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know, because I do love directing. Um, I'm just terrified of the responsibility. That's really honestly what it comes down to.